Oh, one other announcement I wanted to make, I guess, uh, well, it can go in this. Uh, that's fine. The fast of the 10th month is coming uh, a week from Sunday, the 23rd, and that is the commencement of the uh, siege or attack on Jerusalem. And I think that's important uh, and, and can fit in very well with what I have to say today. Uh, it's interesting that this time of year is when that occurred. I don't know when it will happen the next time, but it will. But I want to address something since we're less than a week away from it. And that is December 21st, 2012. It is only next Friday that December 21st comes up. Now, for years, there have been predictions being made that that is the end of the Mayan calendar, and some have gone so far as to say that's the end of the world, that the world will end next Friday. Others have said that the planet Nibiru uh, will hit on that day. Uh, that's been three, four, five, six, eight, ten years ago that people began to predict that. Uh, nobody spotted it yet, and it's only six days away, so that's going to have to happen pretty quickly if that is to occur. But people were speaking of that as if it were gospel. And there are prophecies of Edgar Cayce, prophecies of even... Uh, Nostradamus and some of those things that go way back, the people are saying, whether it's true or not, uh, culminate in December of 2012. I saw information just this week that there's a panic beginning to occur in Russia and China, and many of the people there are suddenly buying candles and trying to put up food and so on because the things that they have heard about next weekend they are beginning to fear and to believe. Even the Pope this past week made an announcement that we need a new world order and that we need a one world government. Now, statements like that used to be made uh, and called conspiracy theories and that only a few people on earth believed in such things, and you were a nut if you said it. I guess that makes the Pope a nut now, because he's come right out with it. These things that used to be whispered on strange internet sites can now be read in the Wall Street Journal about a group of central bankers and a few people who control the economies and the money of the world. So this is not something that is being done in a back corner anymore. Even back when he was president, George H.W. Bush talked about a thousand points of light several times. The illumined ones are the Illuminati he was referring to. That was the president of the United States at the time. And those who are the illumined ones in their idea are essentially Satan worshippers and look upon him and use the name Lucifer instead of Hillel as the angel of light. Now we know those who keep God's laws, his church, are the children of light. But there is a great 
deception carried on by Satan. And the Scripture even says that his messengers or his ministers are transformed as angels of light, that they will appear to be the light bringers. And it is going to be so powerful a light, if you will, that the whole world is going to believe that they are the true light bringers. I think we know different. The Mormons call themselves the Latter-day Saints. That, that is taken, I suppose, from uh, Isaiah, which mentions the saints of the latter day. There is another prophecy that they have made, that they just made a run at fulfilling. I think it was Joseph Smith himself who had the white horse prophecy, in which in the end of days, when the Constitution was hanging by a thread, a man mighty and strong, a Mormon, I'm sure they had in mind, and he did, would attain to the presidency and would save the Constitution and thereby the nation. Now, we are down to the end of days, coming very quickly upon us, and they just made a, rum, a run at it with Mitt Romney. And he didn't make it. I don't know that there will be another election. There may be, but I kind of doubt it looking at the way things are in the world and in the nation today. But it appears their, one of their major prophecies of saving the nation failed. This nation is going down according to Scripture. And nobody is going to show up at the end of days and save the Constitution and the nation. It isn't going to happen. But we have all these things that are pointing to this month as being a very important month. The question is, is it true? Will the world end next week or shortly thereafter? And how do we know that? How can we prove that one way or another? Now, I will say, before I get into this, that there might be something significant happen. I think there's a, a very good possibility of that within this month and perhaps even next Friday. Because Satan is very, very aware of all these prophecies that have been made. And there could be some kind of false flag event. There could be something major that could occur. Who knows? I'm not trying to prophesy or speculate necessarily on that. But the occultists and those who peep and mutter, and the prophets and Protestants even and Catholics of this world, do believe that these are very significant dates and that December 21st, in their estimation, is a very important date. 9 was as well after it was viewed in retrospect, one of the sacred days of the occult. And these things happened. So, I'm not trying to, by what I'm about to present, say that this month could not be very significant. It very well could be. But, is it the end of the world, as many are trying to say? You can read back and forth on this, on the internet or wherever, and... 
you'll see a lot of pro and con. Let's go today and begin to examine some things. I want to turn first to Matthew 24. This is a prophecy that the church has examined many, many times over the years and partially misunderstood and barely sort of understood. I think it is very much clearer today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago in the church. And Jesus, whom we call Emmanuel, went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, See you not all these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, according to history, that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But was that the prophecy that fulfilled this? Today, in that Jerusalem in the Middle East, there is a wall, it's 280 feet or so high, or no, 187 feet, I think I read, uh, by longer than that, I forget now just how long it is, called the Wailing Wall. They call it the West Wall of the Temple. The Arabs think it's the wall remaining of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but the Jews think that that is the west wall of the temple. They call it the Wailing Wall, and they all go there to pray and slip little papers with prayers written on them in between the stones. I've seen them doing it. And they wail and cry and pray before that wall, thinking it's the west wall of the temple. Well, now, if this prophecy were all fulfilled in 70 A.D. in that city... Why do we still have a wailing wall there? It is stone stacked one upon another, 187 feet high, plastered together in a wall. How could this be? It can't be. If Christ's prophecy has been fulfilled, then that, and if that were the west wall of the temple, it would have to be gone today. It couldn't be there. Otherwise, this prophecy is not correct. So was that talking about something else? Or not? Or is it something that has not yet been fulfilled? But he made this prophecy prior to 70 A.D. And he said, uh, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So wherever he was in the temple he was talking about was destined to be torn down and not one stone left. I think that's interesting. Let's go back to Luke for a moment. I just hadn't really noticed this scripture prior to the other night preparing for Bible study, but and we didn't get to it, but... I want to go to it today. Luke 19, and let's begin in verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city. Uh, it says before this that he was coming up on Jerusalem and that uh, he was concerned for it. 
So he beheld the city and wept over it. So Christ looked at Jerusalem and he began to cry, saying, If you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong to your peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. They didn't understand the prophecies about Jerusalem. They didn't understand what would happen. He knew what was coming from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the knowledge he had of the future. And he wept, knowing what would happen there. For the days shall come upon you, that your enemies shall cast a trench about you, and compass you round, and keep you in on every side. Now, if you read the history that is in the purview of the scholars of today, they will say that when the attack commenced on Jerusalem, which next Sunday, a week from Sunday, is the fast of the tenth month, which uh, memorializes that commencement of the battle against Jerusalem. So it does fit in here very well. It says that they did cast a trench, or dug a trench, all the way around Jerusalem so that if anybody tried to get out or tried to escape, they would have to go through the trench, be killed, and then hung on crosses at the edge of the trench to let everybody else inside the city know that this is what would happen to them if they tried to get out of there. And indeed, the scripture says that it was entrenched about it or would be. And shall lay you even, even, flat with the ground, and your children within you, and they shall not leave in you one stone upon another, because you knew not the time of your visitation. So Christ is telling them that not only would the temple that we just read about in Matthew 24 be leveled so that there was not one stone left, but that the city itself would be not flat so that not even one stone would be upon another. The wall, the city, everything would be leveled so no stone was upon another. I had never noticed that before or focused on it. I'd read over it, but I hadn't seen it. So the prophecies of Christ were not only of the temple, but of the city as well. Now, in history, that apparently has not yet occurred in the Middle East at all, because they still see the Wailing Wall there, which was supposedly the wall of the temple Christ was discussing still there today. The city has been ravaged and taken several times over the millennia since, but it has never been completely flattened, nor has it been without inhabitant, as we have seen in Jeremiah's Isaiah, Ezekiel, and other scriptures was prophesied to happen and not have an inhabitant for thousands of years, or many generations, it says. So, I don't want to get into a discussion necessarily of that Jerusalem today and where we believe Jerusalem may be, or the original was, and where the original promised land was. We've discussed that off and on.
So that is not the subject of the day, but I think it is very interesting that when we consider Matthew 24, we need to consider not only the temple, but the city as well being destroyed. Let's go on in Matthew 24. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So now Christ is telling them the temple would be destroyed, but he is also answering a question hereafter about his coming and the end of the age. So we're not only talking about historical things here, we're talking about future things of the return of Christ, the end of the world. That's the subject on the table in many countries, in many religions, and so on this very day as we get closer to December 21st, 2012. And we know by the signs we see around that the end of the age, the end of this world, is not very far away. But is it next week? Let's see what we can derive from the Scripture itself. And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. We need to be very, very careful that we are not deceived about this question. There is room for deceit. Now we know a new world, one world government is coming from Daniel and Revelation and so on. And it can appear very shortly now. It's being talked about, as they said, in World Wall Street Journal. It's being mentioned by the Pope. It's being mentioned by presidents of the United States. It's not something that is a dark secret or a conspiracy theory anymore. It's being admitted by top leaders in the world who, by the way, want to be a piece of it or to lead it. So they're jumping on the bandwagon to play the game to see who comes out on top and is the true leadership of what is coming. We need to be very careful not to be deceived. Let's go back for a moment here to Isaiah uh, Eight. I think this is very important now. There are two signs in chapter 7 that we have gone over several times in the last year or two <coughs> about this nation being destroyed and about a sign of Emmanuel uh, coming to the church as a child. But I want to pick this up in chapter 8 because here it says the uh, destruction is coming very soon, and Isaiah was to name his child Maher Shalel Hashbaz, meaning uh, the prey will come soon, or the destruction will be here soon. And the king of Assyria then, in verse 4, would come upon uh, our nation, along with his coalition or association, verse 9. Uh, a conspiracy, or a confederacy, or a coalition, or an association, however, you, whatever you want to call it. All you far countries, it says. It says, gird yourselves and you will be broken. God clearly shows he is going to break them. But God is with us, verse 10, showing that he is with his people who will obey him. And he says not to worry about this conspiracy or this new world order that is coming. 
But we are to fear God. But I want to, to dash down after that brief review to verse 16. Because here is some sage advice given twice in the next four verses. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Where are we to look for the answers to what is about to come? The testimony of God is the Bible. That is the testimony He has left us. So we are to seal up or to seal unto ourselves, not let it get away, but to seal it so that we might understand. And the law. So all the testimony of God and His law are the things we are to look to here at the end if we are to survive this thing. And he said, And I will wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob. And we've seen that in many scriptures, how at this current time he's hidden from the church. And I will look for him. So we are given some important instruction here. When you see this association, this confederacy, this new world order beginning to come together, that we are to look to the testimony and the law. That is where we should look. The answers to everything we need to know are in this book, and the conduct that we need to survive it is the law of God. And look for God. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Eternal of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. Now, I think that that verse ties directly with the end-time scriptures as well, because there in Zechariah 2, in the time that the two witnesses come on the scene, he says he will come and dwell with them in Zion. Not until then, but then. And he also says in chapter 3 that the people that will be with those leaders at that time will be men of signs and wonders, or will do signs and wonders before this ends. So here we're talking about the end of the age, as is Haggai, as is Zechariah, and we're reading the very same story here. So as Nibiru allegedly arrives, and as all these end-time prophecies are scaring people, we need to find our answers in this book. Now I think verse 19 is very important. And when they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits, and and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek to their God? Should the living go to the dead? Those who are spiritually dead? Or who made prophecies a long time ago, like Nostradamus, who was obviously demon-possessed, heavily influenced, or whatever, and Edgar Cayce, and some of these who made their prophecies long ago and were influenced by demons. Now let's understand that you don't have to have a little crystal ball somewhere in the corner of the slums of a city where you drive by and and it says, come in for a seance. I don't even like to drive by those places. And when I do, I ask God to 
rebuke them and not to let demons follow me when I go by, if I notice them. I, they're, I don't like them. They're uncomfortable. But the Pope is in on this. He's calling for a new world order and one government. And we know the Bible says that that will be under Satan. So what he is really saying, according to God's word, is he wants to be involved with Satan's world government. So the Catholics are among those who peep and mutter and are connected with demons. Now, the Protestants are all those who protested against the Catholic Church and left it, and yet retained most of its major doctrines. Immortality of the soul, Sunday keeping, blah, blah, blah. Christmas, Easter, we know all those. They are still connected. They are part of those who peep and mutter and are connected with demons as well. And the whole Christian world, Scripture says, when all the world will follow the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, when this comes down, they are all part and parcel with it and will go along with it. So again, it's not just somebody with a crystal ball down on 7th Avenue in Miami or wherever that is connected to those that peep and mutter. Some of our recent presidents and their wives have gone to seances and dealt with those that peep and mutter directly. Now, the Apostle John told us, brethren, if they come and bring not this doctrine, this book, not to allow them in your house, nor bid them Godspeed, What is being told us today is not the testimony of this book. If we go to the Protestant world and its prophets and preachers and listen to them by radio, by television, or whatever medium, <laughs> medium's an interesting word there, by print or whatever, then we are going against what the Apostle John clearly instructed us. And we are going to those who are connected to Satan's world and Satan's religions. Now, people have justified that it's okay to listen to the Protestants because they often talk of love. And they have some nice things to say. And indeed they do. But they also are connected to a false love, not the true love of God. And Satan is transformed as a minister of light through them. We are warned right here at the end time to look to the testimony of the Bible and the law of God for our answers in the end time when things get tough. Should we not seek God? And I know that people are getting distracted by listening to a lot of Protestants on radio and on television. And they think it's okay. I'm telling you, 
it is not. You can easily be blinded and deceived. Now you think with your mind you can sort out the chaff from the error. Why go there? Why not go to God's testimony and see what he has to say? Why do we need the other? Now I read about news on the internet, (coughs) but I try to make a difference. If I see something on there, an article that says prophecy, or it's written by someone that I know to be a Protestant minister or whatever, I don't read it. I get articles from others because I don't want to be deceived by it or taken in by it and fear what they fear. We need to take this seriously. God issues us a warning here. We're not to listen. We're not to go there. We need to be careful and sort out what we allow to come into our house. It's not just the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons that knock on your door you don't let in. It's your radio and your television and your internet that you're not to let Satan's transformed ministers of light come into your house. We must be very careful. Why is this warning here otherwise? Perhaps we have said, well, they don't have seances. They're just preaching. Well, they're still connected as transformed angels of light who are connected to Satan and his beliefs. That should be enough for us. Should not a people seek their God, why go to the dead? And he repeats again, verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They are the darkened ones, the unillumined ones, even though they pose as ministers of light. But God says they are dark, and they don't have the truth. He says here, this word. John the Apostle said, this doctrine. All right, if somebody comes and does not teach the Sabbath, the holy days, the Ten Commandments, These doctrines that are in this book, we are commanded not to listen to their religion. It's just that simple. Now, maybe we haven't realized it. Maybe we hadn't thought of it that way. Maybe we had, for one reason or another, justified it or whatever. But I'm telling you, you're walking on dangerous ground and you're walking in a possible conflict with your God, who is a jealous God, who says, should they not seek me instead of these so-called illumined ones? We must be very, very careful, brethren. All right, let's go back to the law and the testimony of God about these things. Back in... uh, Matthew 24. Take heed that no man deceive you. That's where I took off to Isaiah 8 and this dissertation we just saw. Because 
This is a time when Satan is going to deceive the whole world, except for the very elect. And even they would be deceived if it were possible. What we are about to see happen in Satan's world is going to be incredible. And if you think they may talk about love or illumination now and kind of want to listen to a few Protestants or whatever, believe me, what is coming very soon now, whether in December of this month or not, I do not know, but very soon, is <clears throat> going to be so absolutely incredible that it is going to cause Muslims and Shintoists and Buddhists and Christians the whole world to look to the beast and to Satan. I don't know exactly how it will come down, but it is going to be so powerful that only the very elect would not be deceived. And who are going to be the very elect? The ones following the law and the testimony of God. That's where it is going to be. So take heed that you don't be deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So it says they'll come preaching. <coughs> they'll use the name of Christ. Or they may say they are Christ, the Antichrist. But I think generally speaking, this means those who come saying they are in the name of Christ, but they are not. So he's reiterating what I've just been telling you. Do not listen to those who say they are of Christ and do not have this doctrine, this word, the law and the testimony. And there are those who would lead us to believe that the world is coming to an end next Friday, or soon thereafter, or whatever. And some around here have been telling us that now for years. I'm here to tell you, and I'm going to prove it, it ain't going to happen. Now, something big could happen in Satan's world. But it is not the end of the age, and the world will not end. Let's go on. Because that's the question on the table. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the world? He says, Don't be deceived. And many are being deceived right now and will continue to be. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, we are in a time right now where there are rumors of more and more wars, and there are many wars going on on the earth now. Ten, fifteen years ago when I traveled, I didn't worry too much about where I went through airports or whatever around the world because there weren't many wars going on. But now I have to be very careful, I find, to select exactly where I go and don't want to go. In planning this recent trip, I thought about going through Turkey. All right, it's squared off against Syria now. What's going to happen there? I don't know, but the war, war uh, clouds are building. I found a fairly cheap flight through um, Dubai, Amer the uh, Arab Emirates. But it's only a few miles from the Straits of Hormuz, where you have a great armada of of uh, ships, warships gathered right now. By January 20th, who knows? There could be war there. may not happen that quick, but it could. 
Something sets it off, something in December or whatever. Things could change very rapidly, so I'm trying to pick how can I get there safely. I mean, yeah, you pray for God's protection, but you don't want to be a total fool either. I don't think flying through Tehran, Iran right now is a good idea. But there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Well, we see that. He says, okay, you'll see that, but the end has not come. Oh. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. We're seeing drought here. We're seeing drought in other places in the world. There are famines already going on in which millions of people are dying in Africa and in Asia, different places. So these things are getting worse. <clears throat> Earthquakes seem to be happening more and more rapidly just these last few months and weeks. They're increasing. All these are the beginning of sorrows. This is only the start so when you see wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes beginning to multiply, it isn't the time of the end yet. It's not there yet. So we see these happening right now and getting worse here in December of 2012. But he's stating this is only the beginning of sorrows. It will get much worse before the end of the world. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Have they turned against the church yet? Have they started martyring people in the church yet? Well, if it's going to happen in 2012, the end of the world, this is going to, this is going to have to happen real fast now. This is what, the 14th already? Something like that of December? Got about half the month left. Is this all going to be fulfilled by the end of this month? I don't think so. It might start, I don't know that, but it's not going to end. And we are not hated of all nations for His sake. That takes time to develop. I think some of the prophecies of this very chapter have to occur as we move on that will cause us, one, to be recognized by the whole world, and number two, hated by the whole world. That doesn't happen that quickly. It'll happen fairly fast when it's time for it, but it isn't there yet. They haven't started killing God's people yet. In fact, the whole world doesn't even know us. Worldwide Church of God is basically forgotten. Herbert Armstrong is almost forgotten. He died 27 years ago next month. Some of you here who are adults were not yet born when he died. You can ask people on the street now if they remember Herbert Armstrong, and most of them don't. Never heard of him. Back in the 60s and 70s, you could ask and nearly everybody knew, had heard of the broadcast or had listened to it or heard of it. Not anymore. That's way in the rearview mirror. And all the persecution and the hatred that we thought would come on the church back then never happened. 
That wasn't the end of the age. wasn't the end of the world. And it's still not. <clears throat> and then many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, I think we're seeing that happening. The church has fallen apart, separated, splintered, and the love of many has waxed cold, and there's a great falling away. Now, on a church level, spiritual Israel level, we have already seen this happen and to a great degree. But even the end-time church has not come apart so that there's not one stone upon another yet. If you consider spiritual Israel only, there's still a lot of, or quite a few, they're stacked pretty high yet. But physical Israel also is being dismantled before our very eyes. And the love of many is waxing cold. And then we have things like happened in Connecticut just yesterday where somebody goes in and murders little five- and six-year-old children. What a horrible thing. Had to have been heavily demon-influenced or drugged or whatever to do such an awful thing. But it's not just that. These things are increasing very, very rapidly where somebody guns down two or three. Happened in Las Vegas yesterday. Somebody killed somebody else and then themselves. So sometimes they kill two or three, like the mall the other day, somewhere else. Sometimes they kill more. But it's getting where there is a coldness and a lack of true human feeling. It's happening in, not only in the church, but in the nation as well. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So he says, now all these things are going to happen, but the end is not yet here. Even when they begin to persecute and kill the church, the end is not yet here. Okay? And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Now there's the first statement in this chapter that talks about when it actually will occur. You see, there's a great deal that has to happen that has not yet happened before we reach that point. So even already, I think I could clearly say in this sermon right here that it won't end this month. It isn't over. All these things have to happen before it comes. Now he begins to discuss when it will. The gospel has to be preached around the world as a witness to all nations, and then will it come. There are those today <coughs> who still cling to one log on the flotsam and jetsam of the destruction of the church that say that Herbert Armstrong was the end-time Elijah and that he restored all things and that the end of the world came when he died? A, he never preached the gospel to every nation in all the world. It never happened. His message went to a lot of the world, but it didn't go to all the world. It just didn't happen. 
And he died 27 years ago almost, and the end of the world has not come. I think it is safe to say at this point he was not the end time Elijah to come who would restore all things. There are many people and many organizations in the church of God who have learned new things since he died. He never knew the Jewish calendar was contrary to God's heavens. For one thing, and a lot of people have learned that since he died. And we could go on and on and on. We've learned a lot of things right here. But he never knew that I think can be clearly proven in Scripture. And other people have learned other things. Some of what we've learned, other people have learned and brought to us in that sense. So he didn't restore all things. And he died and the end of the world hasn't come. Now, I think that he and his son were indeed a type of the Moses and Elijah to come at the end, or the two witnesses. They were in the former temple. We'll get to that in a minute in Haggai and Zechariah. And they both fulfilled that in part. And in fact, in 1981, Herbert Armstrong told me, I am Zerubbabel. He thought he was, and maybe he was a minor type of that because he was the end-time church of God, and his son that lived uh, went through all kinds of things that made him, in that sense, filthy. We won't get into character assassination, but there were a lot of problems uh, with the second-in-command in the worldwide church of God. But they both died, and the end did not come. And there is another temple that has to be built. The former is gone, and some of you old men are going to be around to see the latter temple occur. Hasn't come yet. Because the leadership is not even there yet, and the gathering has not come yet. Now, when is the gospel going to be preached around the world as the witness, and the end come? To me, that ought to be a no-brainer by now. But if you're clinging to the past and to your idea that Herbert Armstrong was the last Elijah to come, now see, even John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. Christ showed that in Luke 17. Well, I guess we'll get there. And I think Herbert Armstrong, or Ted Armstrong maybe, may have been... Uh, a type of that as well. God repeats these types over and over. But the final one, we shall see, comes right at the end. Let's, uh, let's tie that in right here, since I've already gone there. Go back to Malachi 4. He's talking here about the return of Christ and the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. Verse 3, And he shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. So he's talking here very much end time. When the wicked are scheduled soon to be ashes under the feet of the righteous. Isn't very far off. Now what does he say as a parting shot here in this end time context? Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. 
Now that's what we just read in Isaiah 8, that the law and the testimony are to be looked to because that's where God will be in the end time. So, we have Moses here introduced with the statutes, the laws, the judgments of God at the end time. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there was the original Elijah. There was John the Baptist who was a type of Elijah. And he had always, was already dead and had his head cut off when Christ said that an Elijah will come. And we had possibly one of the Armstrongs as a minor type of Elijah as well in the latter, the former temple. But there is to come yet another. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. So just before the end and the day of the Lord, there will be another appear. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So unless there is a Moses type who oversees the law in the church of God, and unless there is one who restores things to the way they ought to be, probably including history, probably including doctrine, probably including a lot of things, God will wipe out mankind from the earth. So this thing is hinging upon a ministry being done at the end. Let's go for a moment to Luke 17 and see this again. <clears throat> oh, Luke 9. Wait, wait a minute. Is it 17? No, oh, Matthew 17. What am I saying? I knew that wasn't right. Matthew 17 I want. Now, this was the case where Christ took Peter, James, and John and brought them to a high mountain apart. It had to be a high mountain somewhere near Jerusalem that they could go to. Uh, if you look at the Middle East, there's not one there, but unless they went clear up to Mount Hermon, 80, 90 miles away or somewhere, uh, there's no high mountain there. But that's an aside. <clears throat> and was transfigured before them, and his face shone as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So this is... Uh, the picture that we get in Revelation 1 of Christ in His glory. And there appeared to him, unto them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. So here you had a Moses and Elijah at the time when Christ is coming in His glory. And they said, the disciples, well, shall we make booths, three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah? Because... They were thinking of Christ returning in the fall, Feast of Trumpets, perhaps, and the Feast of Tabernacles then starting, or the millennium. They knew what was to transpire. Now, there's one preacher even in the church that claims that the first resurrection's on Pentecost. You don't build booths at Pentecost. You build them for the fall festival. Anyway... Shall we build you booths? While he, and while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. 
So God the Father made it very clear that Christ was to be our first authority in these matters, that there would be a Moses and Elijah come at the end, but they would not be God. Christ would still be God. And he said he's coming in Zechariah 2 to dwell with the latter temple and the two witnesses at the time of the end. And they will preach his word. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And he said, rise, don't be afraid. They lift their eyes and they saw only him. The, the vision was gone. And as he came down, he told them, don't tell this vision to any man till I've died and resurrected. But let's see this next question. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come, a prophecy, and restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatever they liked. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then they understood he's talking about John the Baptist. So he said, There's been one come who told about his coming, who told about his birth, who was his cousin, who had told them many things and restored those prophecies of the Old Testament. And he said they didn't listen to him. And he says, there shall be another come. It's future tense here. At the end. But if they didn't listen to John the Baptist, why would they listen at the end either? So we see clearly here that he ties the work of the two witnesses together with Moses and Elijah at the end. Now, Revelation 11 says they're going to die in the streets of Jerusalem. And three and a half days later comes the first resurrection and the return of Christ. When they finish preaching to the world, the whole world... The message of this book around the world to all nations, they will then die in a battle in Jerusalem and lie in the streets, it says, while the world parties, the whole world will have hated them. They will have hated the whole church, which will be in a place of safety, shining as a true light to the whole world. And then the end will come. Now that puts it more than three and a half years off in itself. The tribulation hasn't started yet. Their three and a half years of preaching hasn't started yet to the whole world. So we're not anywhere near the end of the world yet. Matthew 24 tells us that they will go and preach to the whole world. And from the time that they start... The book of Revelation makes it very clear there will be three and a half years. And when they die, when they quit preaching, three and a half days later, the end will come. That did not happen with Herbert Armstrong and his son. He was not the Moses and his son was not the Elijah to come. I think that should be abundantly clear based on what he's saying right here. It just didn't happen. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So he says, when you see the abomination of desolation set up, you're to flee 
to the mountains. That hasn't occurred yet. That's when the two witnesses begin their message, is that day. There are those who think we have already started the three and a half years. Where is the gospel going to the world? Hasn't occurred yet. Verse 21 says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world of this time, nor ever shall be. And if it weren't shortened for the elect's sake, there would be no flesh saved alive. That has not yet occurred. Now, let's consider this. From the time they start their message, there have to be at least three and a half years. Now, it says to flee, if you're in Judea, Judea, I think that means the true Judea, and it's in parentheses, let him who reads understand. There's something here that normally you would miss unless you had some inside knowledge of what the Scriptures are saying that most people simply do not recognize. Let's go to Daniel 9 for a moment. Now, Daniel speaks of the abomination of desolation. And here, and we know Daniel is an end-time prophecy. It can't be any time before that because Christ said it would be sealed up until the end. So he said, you cannot understand the book of Daniel until the end time. Now, there have been commentators who hundreds of years ago wrote their prophecies or their comments about the book of Daniel. And they proposed or purported to explain the book of Daniel about the different world-ruling empires and so on and so forth. Well, there may have been some types back then, but it wasn't yet the time of the end, and therefore they could not understand the book of Daniel. Now we're getting very near the end of time, and as these events occur we shall begin, I think, to understand Daniel more clearly. And I think to some degree we already are. He talks about the desolate sanctuary in verse 17 of God. Now, this is an end-time prophecy. He says the sanctuary of God will be desolate. Now, we have read recently that, in the last few years, the Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations. Now, the city in the new, I mean, in uh, the Middle East is not desolate. It is not without inhabitant. It has been inhabited now for hundreds, thousands of years. People have generally always been there, always been there, I guess. So, is this end-time prophecy wrong? Jerusalem will be his sanctuary. And then maybe talking about the temple. Well, there's no temple there. There's no temple over here for that matter. So he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations in the city which is called by your name. Not just the temple, if you want to take that as a dodge on this, but the city as well which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, but for your great mercies. So both the sanctuary and the temple and the city are desolate. At the time, you can begin to understand Daniel. 
Okay? Clear? Now what does he go on down here and talk about? Has a 70 weeks prophecy beginning in verse 24. 70 weeks are determined upon your people, so this involves the church, and upon the holy city, so it includes Jerusalem. Has to be the true Jerusalem here. Uh, to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sins and to make a re reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the holy ones should be in the Hebrew. The most holy is not in Hebrew. But God says of his people at the end, he is going to turn his face back to them, that he is going to forgive their iniquity in one day, and that's at the time of the end as well in Zechariah 3, as well as... Uh, Isaiah 44 and other places. So it's definitely an end time prophecy in which he will wipe their sins away as a cloud and remove their iniquity in one day. And righteousness will start then and never end till the kingdom of God is here. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem to the anointed one, I think it's referring to Zerubbabel here, not Christ himself, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous time. So Jerusalem has to be desolate. The sanctuary has to be desolate. And there has to come a time here in the end where God is going to, or an, an order is going to be issued to build Jerusalem and the wall of Jerusalem, even in troublous times. Now, the wall of the city in the Middle East is there. I walked on it a few years ago. I've seen it. I know it's there. And the city is there. And I'll tell you, it is not desolate. It is teeming with a sea of humanity. You can hardly get down the narrow little streets of it. Now I ask you a question. Is it going to be completely destroyed and no inhabitant there and be desolate prior to all these prophecies being finished? Or is it possible that's not the true sight of the original Jerusalem and that one is desolate, and there will come a time here at the end when an order is given to rebuild the city and the wall. And that 70 weeks later, or this prophecy of 70 weeks, notice how it culminates. And here's why I think I can say that when they translated this, they thought it was speaking of Christ, the Most High, but I think it's speaking of the anointed ones or the holy ones or the two witnesses who will give the order to restore it. Notice uh, verse 26. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This isn't talking of Christ. He's not going to be cut off. been talking about a human. Uh, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, an army, 
And to the end of the war, desolations are determined. So this is the abomination that is set up. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even to the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So, this is the abomination of desolation spoken of that Daniel the prophet that Christ mentioned in Matthew 24. He says, when that abomination occurs, it is the time to flee to the mountains. You have three and a half years then of the ministry of the witness. And this prophecy ends at the beginning of that three and a half years of tribulation. So, 70 weeks is roughly a year and a half. So that means that this prophecy has to be fulfilled beginning at least 70 weeks, or 70 weeks it says, before the abomination is even set up. So there's three and a half years of the prophesying of the witnesses, and another year and a half building up to that where the desolate city and sanctuary of the temple have to be rebuilt. That's five years already. You cannot squeeze five years into this month. It would be very difficult. That's an awful lot of stuff that has to happen that is timed here in prophecy. A desolate city and a desolate sanctuary have to be restored. And you know what? That hasn't even started yet. Let's go back to the book of Haggai. We're quite familiar with it at this point, but let's understand. All these wizards that peep and mutter and all these prognosticators and prophets do not have a clue what they are talking about. Why go to those that peep and mutter and are tuned into Satan's <coughs> wavelength and do not understand the testimony given in this book? This is where we look for the answers. I'm headed for Haggai, but I keep talking and I don't get there. Now, here it talks about Zerubbabel and Joshua. Let's understand who they are. Right off the bat, go to Zechariah, keep your finger here, but go to Zechariah 4 and verse 14. Here he's talking about two who stand on the sides of the candlestick, the seven candlesticks mentioned in the book of Revelation, the seven churches. And they are giving oil or understanding to God's people. And he says, Do you know who these are? And I said, No, my Lord, verse 13. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Or my margin says, The sons of oil. The ones anointed to do an end time work. There's only one other place in the Bible that this is mentioned. That's Revelation 11. I'll turn back and read that as well. Verse 4, these two 
are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. This is the only other place that this is mentioned, and it's the exact same context, the one standing by the God of the earth. So it's talking about the two witnesses in the end time. Now, if you go back to the book of Haggai, you see those two mentioned, and here they are mentioned in the context of Zephaniah and the great financial crash that is coming. And here in this month, we're talking about a great fiscal cliff in our mass media. And it is becoming more abundantly clear that whether this happens right after January starts or whether it's something that's down the road a little bit, there is a monster crash coming. Nations are trying to divest themselves of American dollars and find ways to do business without it. We are printing trillions of the little things now by the year. And it is going to crash. And that's why Zephaniah says it is. Or as Isaiah 29 says, it'll lean out like a wall and then fall with a crash. It's coming. And I think it's coming soon. Now in Haggai, he starts this story by referring to the two that we just read about in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11. And it says that there will be a gathering of people at a time when the temple has to be built. Now whether that's speaking of a spiritual temple or a physical is beside the point here for the moment. Those two individuals will, as Haggai says, have a remnant, a 10% tithe, God's portion, that will be gathered from around the world, and there are many scriptures that back it up, but it's put right here in the context of precisely and specifically two people that will come together and the people will be gathered to them here in the end time and they will build the latter temple. And the glory of this latter house, verse 9, shall be greater than the former. And there will be old men, as it says in uh, oh, chapter 2, verse 3, and repeated in Ezra more clearly. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, I think it is. But there will still be old men around who will have seen the former temple. That could only refer to Herbert Armstrong's work. And the latter temple with the final fulfillment of Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses. And when they die, the end shall come. Now the reason I bring this up is that that gathering has not yet begun. Those two are not visible yet in working with the church. And Revelation 11 even says, Measure the temple and the altar and leave out the court of the Gentiles. Don't even deal with the world yet. Your first job is to preach to the church. And that's what Zechariah 4 says. They will give oil to all seven of the lamps. That's their first job, is for the church to be gathered, 10% of it, to them, a remnant. And they are to build the temple, which will require some time. They will also be involved in giving the order, the anointed ones we read in Daniel 9, to rebuild a desolate Jerusalem, and the temple, the sanctuary. That has not yet begun to happen. That will take time as well. To build the temple, 
first, and then the order to build Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, in a desolate place. And three and a half years after that is completed, which takes 70 weeks, will come the abomination of desolation. So here we're talking about three and a half years backing off from Christ's return, another roughly a year and a half to build Jerusalem from the time the order is given to do so, and before that, the two witnesses appearing upon the scene with signs and wonders, and 10% of the church responding to them, and them building the temple. We're not at the end. There is too much that has to happen. It will not end next week. It will not end any time soon thereafter next week. There is a lot of work that yet has to be done. I think it will happen very soon. And I think there's a great possibility that Satan, knowing time is short will get his thing going. And if they're calling, like the Pope and other major world leaders, for a new world order in one government, openly, they're getting ready to move. And I think God is going to be, re will be moving soon. Very soon. And I think I see things that are harbingers of that things that I'm watching that seem to indicate that this may happen fairly soon. I won't go into all that, but I wanted to let us see today that there's an awful lot that has to happen. And you don't need to listen to all those that are crying and preparing and worrying that the end of the world is coming this next week. It ain't going to happen. Things may get worse. They might get decidedly worse. And the crash will come soon. And I believe we will go to war in the Middle East again. Well, we're still there in a couple, three places, but yet another war very soon. This is coming. So let's be aware, and let's not look to the wizards that peep and muddle, mutter and muddle, and get all worried about it, because I think we can see in the law... And the testimony, and we've talked mostly about the testimony today, of God's Word, that there are a lot of important events, and I, I didn't get all of them, there are many more things that have to happen. But I wanted to give an overview at least of a lot of things that have to occur before we have to worry about the end of the world. And part of that is us getting ready and enduring to the end, and drawing close to God and looking for him, as it says there, for him, instead of to these wizards that peep and mutter and talk about these giants that are coming uh, soon. and all, Yeah, Satan's, Satanism and demonism is increasing rapidly, and that's why we're seeing people gnawing faces. That's why we're seeing uh, more and more shootings in public places, and on and on it goes, and more and more drugs. And all of these things are increasing. And Satan is going to be cast down, but not yet, because that's the day the abomination of desolation is set up again there in Revelation 12. And it says that the church then flee, and a flood or an army will come after you. That's what it says in Daniel 9, when the abomination is set up. 
But that's still years away. So let's understand that and be here for the long haul and wait patiently for God and look for Him and get our relation with Him and His law and His testimony right. Then we don't have to worry about all these people making all these prophecies about all the various things they have imagined or misdirected or twisted out of context in the Scripture or gotten in weird dreams and prophecies that are about to happen. Now Satan may be cluing them in to some of the things he has in mind. But is that the wavelength you want to check out to see what is about to happen? Because it will always be twisted and perverted to some degree. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to it from anyone. If they come and bring you that stuff, God says, don't listen to it. Go by this testimony in this book and keep His law and turn to God. And there is your salvation.